Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Dave Kimura. Hey, everyone. Andrew Mason. Hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv coming to you through my phone. I'm really sorry for the audio quality. We have a special guest this week, and that is Brittany Martin. Brittany, do you want to say hello and introduce yourself? Absolutely. I'm super honored to be here. I'm the lead web developer for the Pittsburgh Cultural Trust, where I'm part of the team that develops the nonprofit's ticketing and festival web applications. I'm also the host of the Ruby on Rails podcast on the 5x5 network. And under my alter ego, Norma Skates, I play and referee roller derby for the Little Steel Derby Girls. Nice. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. I forgot we had a celebrity here. I mean, roller derby is a big deal. It is a big deal. I mean, the big thing about roller derby is not whether or not you get knocked over, but whether or not you get back up. Makes sense. It's hard to get back up with wheels on your feet. It certainly is. My first roller derby practice, I went because my sister encouraged me. She's been a referee for 10 years. And so the first drill that they have you do is put on your skates and then people knock you over and they see whether or not you can get back up. And as I was finishing up, someone came over to me and said, wow, you just have a real talent at falling down. And, you know, (laughs) I will be honest, I was hooked after that. Yeah, when people tell me that, it's usually metaphorical. Yeah, absolutely. It just sounds so brutal, so violent. I'm not a big sports person, so maybe I'm just a little biased. Well, it's funny because I uh, grew up playing lacrosse, which is definitely a contact sport. And so when I started playing (laughs) roller derby, I was like, oh, another contact sport. This is fine. The thing is, roller derby is not a contact sport. It's a collision sport. The entire point (laughs) is that you are supposed to be colliding with other people. And a lot of people ask me, well, where's the ball in roller derby? Literally, there's a single skater called the jammer and they are the ball. And so you're doing your best job as you can to either be the ball and get through four different people, or you're one of those four different blockers trying to stop that ball. Gotcha. I I wanted to talk just a minute and let you uh, explain what you do on the Ruby on Rails podcast, then we can dive into uh, the topic for today. Yeah, absolutely. And it's kind of an interesting story how I got involved. So the 5x5 Ruby on Rails podcast has been around for 10 years. So it has gone through many different hands. Most recently, Kyle Daigle, who is an engineering manager at GitHub, took over the podcast. And he did an amazing job. And at one point, he was looking for co-hosts to come onto the show. And he basically put out an open call on the show. And you know, it frightened me to reach out to him. But I said, hey, I really love Ruby. I really love Rails. And I think I feel more confident in my web career that I could be on this podcast. So I reached out to him. I came onto the show as a co-host for a couple episodes. And then Kyle got really busy. And as it turns out, uh, Microsoft was acquiring GitHub, as it turns out. 
So he got very busy and the podcast kind of dropped off. So I independently reached out to Kyle and said, Hey, would you be interested in having me take over the podcast? And he was absolutely game. So I'm about 40 episodes into the podcast. I try to uh, deviate each week where I try to bring someone in from the community that people are familiar with, people that have been on the conference circuit. But then I'm also reaching out to people that have never been on a podcast before. So I really want to bring on new voices. And it's a lot of fun when you see people's confidence soar after they've done their first podcast. They end up just being hungry for more. Yeah, I've definitely seen that as well. People are a little bit trepidatious the first time they get in. And then it's, it's like, oh, I can do that. And I like talking about this stuff. I've heard there's a trick where I haven't done this myself, but I'm actually going to try to do it at some point is to start recording without telling the other person and just have a casual conversation with them. And then maybe 20 minutes into it, realize that that I've been recording the entire time. So that is a trick that I want to try, but I haven't been brave enough to do it yet. Right. Yeah, I've I've been tempted. I was talking to somebody else who uh, basically put out a call, for lack of a better term, and essentially said, look, I want to do this podcast, but what I really want is if you want to come and just talk for a half hour, right? So there's no agenda. It's just, you know, we're just going to chat about programming or life or whatever, then, you know, pick a time. And I've, I've really been tempted to do that because I, I love that aspect of things where it's, yeah, let's just have a natural conversation, right? One of my favorite podcasts does that. I don't know if you've listened to Art of Product, but basically Ben and Derek come on and give updates on the startups that they've been working on. Yeah. One of my favorite aspects of the show is that if they bring on a guest they just continue with the same format. So even if they have like a really famous guest and you know you want to ask them all kinds of questions, they always start off the episode with doing their weekly updates because as listeners, we're extremely vested into it. Yeah, and Ben and Derek are terrific guys. I've known both of them for a few years. And yeah, it's always fun to chat with them and see what's going on. And they're both working on interesting stuff these days too. So yeah. Agreed. I remember listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast kind of around that time that Kyle started to get busier and busier. I remember I would check back periodically to see if it ever got started up again. So I was really excited that you took it over and I've been listening to it religiously ever since. I really appreciate that, Andrew. That means a lot to me. I feel the same way about Ruby Rogues. Wow. You both listen to podcasts in church? Okay. That was a bad dad joke. (laughs) You came on to talk about uh, Rails Against the Machine, which is a talk that you've been giving. Correct. Um, so I you want to just talk- give us the elevator pitch? Yeah. Absolutely. So I gave this talk at both RubyConf Malaysia and remotely for Ruby on Ice. And so here's the pitch. What should a development team do when a few bad users threaten their application? Online businesses are plagued with trolls and bots. Learn how your team can leverage features from Ruby on Rails and AWS to monitor and secretly segment bad actors using automation and behavioral triggers. So the idea behind this talk is because I work for a large nonprofit where we have desirable inventory, in our case, it's tickets. What do we do when we have people that are acting nefarious on the site And we don't want to block them out because they know if we block our ticket resellers from our site, they'll know. And what they'll do in turn is they will try to attack us. So how do we integrate bad users into our site and allow them to be part of the ecosystem? And instead of doing a hard and fast block against them, how we degrade their experience that way they continue to peacefully live within that ecosystem. Interesting. So in your case, it's not... Because when we think of like bad users, you know, 
what comes to my mind is people who are trying to like hack the site to get access to people's data and things like that. And in your case, what what it is is their their behavior is essentially non-ideal, right? You you want to sell tickets directly to the people who want to go see the show, not to the people who want to get tickets to sell them to other people who want to see the show. Exactly. That relationship that we have with the person who buys the ticket does not end with the show. You know, it is a nonprofit. We are looking for donations. We're looking for other things. We spend a lot of money to increase the art footprint in Pittsburgh. So we run a lot of free festivals. We have free art galleries and alike. If you buy a ticket from StubHub from one of these ticket resellers, we've completely lost that relationship. And on top of that, a lot of times the ticket resellers do bad things with that ticket where they sell it to multiple people. They uh, will charge you double to triple the amount. I was absolutely amazed to discover that the number one scout show is the Nutcracker. There is a ticket reseller in Texas that is their entire job is they buy en masse Nutcracker tickets from across the country and charge triple to four times the amount to these oh, innocent. God. It's awful. And what ends up yeah. happening is these these patrons will spend, let's say, $300 on a $60 Nutcracker ticket. And what happens is that they'll complain that it wasn't worth the money. Well, of course it wasn't. It was supposed to be sold to you for $60. I remember being forced as a child to go see the Nutcracker several times. <laughs> <laughs> was like my mom's favorite show and I couldn't sit still and I, uh, but $400, that's kind of insane that someone's making a living off of just reselling tickets. Absolutely. And yeah. there are other, there are other examples as well that you might be familiar with. So imagine someone goes into a store and buys a doorknob and the price on it's on clearance for $5. And then that person takes it home and they swap out the label and they bring it back to the store and claim that they paid $50 for it. So that's like a serial returner situation. Or something that we're probably familiar as developers is people trying to hack Hacker News. So Hacker News, as you know, is a place where you can post links. And should the community like it, they'll upvote it. And then you get a lot of free exposure for your content. Now, right. if you try to get people from like your office or whatever to all upvote something all at the same time, which is not the way it works, you know, Hacker News will try to block you and send your your content downwards. So instead of paying to actually market that content, you're trying to, quote unquote, hack a content platform in order to push what you want to sell. Yeah, I've done that where... It was, I think it was Reddit. I did it once. And yeah, I, I went and I think I tweeted and said, hey, go upvote this. And then somebody pointed out, you know, that's against their terms of use. I'm like, Oh, and I deleted the tweet. But yeah, you know, sometimes people don't realize and sometimes people are, you know, they're they're deliberately trying to game the system, whether they realize or not that that's not the way you want it done. You know, and I think in the context of ticket sales, let's say if your website has a launch date for tickets to be sold. So at this time when midnight, tickets are going to be sold, buy them quick, they're going to sell out super fast. So you have people at 11.59, you know, 10 minutes upwards to the sale time, just refreshing their browser over and over and over and over. So now you have legitimate customers who are wanting to buy a ticket for themselves, but they're causing unnecessary load to your traffic, to your server. So in situations like that, where you do have a legitimate user who you don't want to block, but they're performing 
actions that are almost like edge casey or not intentional? How do you handle those kind of situations? Such a good question. So we use a third-party tool called Qit whenever we know that we're going to have a large on-sale or pre-sale. The great thing about Qit is that you have two different options in order to implement it into your website. For the most part, most users use the JavaScript implementation. So it's simply reading the cookies in the browser in order to determine whether or not that user has already gotten in line already in that browser. Most of the users that we deal with aren't clever enough to have multiple different types of browsers running in order to get into line. They just simply open up a million tabs trying to get a better place in line. For us, because we have complete control over our custom Ruby on Rails application, we use the server-side implementation of Qit, which means that we can do some interesting logic in the back end. Should we know that this user is a known ticket reseller, we can actually cancel their space in that presale which is extremely frustrating for them because they think that they have a set place in line. And then when the pre-sale actually starts happening, then we have the option to be able to remove them from their place in line. Now, one interesting thing that happened with Hamilton is that we had over 300,000 people approach, uh, come to the website in hopes of getting tickets. We had over 32 different shows. So we did have a lot of tickets, but certainly not enough to supply demand. When the sale actually started happening, we randomized all of the users that were in line. So we might have had people that tried to get online at two in the morning thinking they had a guaranteed spot at the top, but that was not the case. So we had ticket resellers who tried to use a ticket farm or a server farm in order to get as many places in line to only get randomized and be put in the back of the line. Remember, our key here is that we want our good users getting those tickets having an excellent experience at Hamilton, and then turning around and spending more time in downtown Pittsburgh, whether it's at our opera, our symphony, or our public theater. I guess I'll just have to come down to Pittsburgh. Yeah, you really should. We, we have Hamilton coming back next year. Oh, nice. Yeah, Hamilton came out here and I missed it. So I heard It's it worth good. it. It's worth the experience. I'm waiting for them to make a movie, but I have a feeling that's not going to be happening for a while just based <laughs> on how well the show has been doing. Right. I think we, we won't be seeing that for quite a while. Yeah. No, that makes total sense to me as far as just, yeah, wanting your, your users that are going to come back again and again and again and the people that are you know going to really enjoy it have the best experience. So one thing that we've done in the Ruby on Rails application is that we have a specific model. So we have a model for our user And we try very hard to not make that a God object because that tends to happen in a lot of applications. But we have a separate model specifically for ticket resellers. And in that model, we have several different methods of how we define that that person is a ticket reseller. Because we have a very localized business in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, anyone who's buying tickets, say where Chuck is located, (laughs) might be a bit of a flag for us because we do have people that travel into shows and whatnot. But for the most part, the majority of our customers are in a localized area. And so should you be buying tickets from across the world, then we kind of, we have the ability to mark you as a potentially suspected ticket reseller. Now, because we have that model, we have these definitions that we know that someone's a ticket reseller. And so then we are able to do things throughout the ticket reseller's buying process to be able to degrade their experience. So a good example is if someone is a known ticket reseller, they get marked in our CRM that we have a third-party API into. So as that ticket reseller logs into the website in order to purchase their tickets, we start to take certain features away from them that they very well love. So when you go to buy your ticket, so most people like to select their own seat. You're going to a show, you want to pick the best view for you in the price range that you want. 
we actually take that feature away if you're a known ticket reseller. If you are not a ticket reseller, then you can use select your own seed. Otherwise, you have to buy your tickets by price. Another feature that we have that is very loved by our patrons is printing at home. If you are a known ticket reseller, we don't do that because what the ticket resellers will do is they'll print the tickets at home and then they'll mail them to the people who unwittingly bought these uh, nefarious tickets. And so it's things like that that we do so that the ticket resellers don't quite know that we're on to them, but it slows them down enough so that our best users are getting those tickets. So what would prevent a ticket reseller from creating a whole new account from a different IP address to then purchase a bunch of tickets and enjoy these benefits? Dave, it's like you queued this question up for me. <laughs> looking out my VPN, baby. You can't get this Utah scalper off the, off the site. No, sir. So we actually have two methods that we use on people like this. So if you are a brand new account, we basically for seven days assume that you are not quite a ticket reseller, but we actually degrade some of the experiences from you. So if you open a brand new account, For seven days, you cannot print at home. So things like that, that kind of scale you back a little bit. You still have a great ticket experience, but we try to guard against things like that. Now, a feature that I am very proud of is when you are a known ticket reseller and you log into our website, I slip a cookie into your browser session. So when you log out and you log into a new account, I'm using a background job to mark you as a ticket reseller. So we call that one, you know, like the the cookie infection. And you would not believe how many ticket resellers we pick up with that one because they'll just simply create a new account. I get them marked up and then they get upset. They'll send in customer service inquiries and say, hey, I thought I'd be able to print it at home. Well, no, you can't. Yeah. Sorry. So I like thinking badly. So I'm a nice person, but I like trying to work the system, if you will. So... What about a ticket reseller who creates their account eight days in advance of the sale of the ticket? That's such a good question. So within the CRM itself, the third-party API, which is called Tessitura, we are able to run IP address reports. So if we know a known ticket reseller, so as an example, I, I noted the Texas reseller who sells Nutcracker tickets. If we get a large amount of sales or even some sales from that IP address, then we know that we can mark them. Now, in that case, they've already gotten their tickets. And that's something that we have to accept as web developers is that we can't stop all ticket sales because it's certainly worse to be wrong than it is to be right. But we do have the ability to cancel orders after the fact. And that is something that we do do. When we knew that we were having Hamilton come, we had ticket resellers who would buy an entire subscription to our Broadway series. And they would literally throw the tickets in the trash just to get at Hamilton. When we knew that was happening, we have the ability to be able to cancel those tickets. Hopefully, they're non-refundable. Oh, absolutely. Definitely (laughs) (laughs) non-refundable. Yeah, I could sit in two seats at the previous show. Anyway, one thing that I'm curious about is uh, I I like talking about like the tactics of of setting this up so that, yeah, you're essentially rewarding the people you want to be buying from you and making it harder for the people that you don't. The, the one thing that I'm running into is, okay, so what about other apps, right? How do you decide if somebody's a bad actor in that other app? So for example, I'm building a, a SaaS application for podcasters, right? And so they're paying for a subscription for the SaaS. But is this something you just kind of pick up over time? Oh, these kinds of people are not the kind of people that I want in the system. So I'm going to make it a little harder for them to want to stay or... 
Well, I think it'd be good to start with a discussion of who is your ideal user, Chuck, and then who is someone that you would not want that you would not want to use the site. I guess that's true, uh, and and it's interesting too because I think for the most part, you know, I want people who are going to benefit from the the website, but could someone be abusing a free trial? Could someone in a company be sharing a login to your application so that way they don't right. have to pay per user? Is that the kind of nefarious stuff that you'd want to stop? I haven't thought that far ahead, but yeah, probably. Well, it sounds like you need to tap Dave in since, tap, since Dave wants to think about bad people. <laughs> <laughs> you should have Dave advance. I would say that would be step one. So yeah. definitely tap Dave in there. But I think it's really looking at behavior. So we have our application completely rigged up with Google Analytics. So we run a lot of reports to see what users are doing. One fun thing to do is we have a promo code box. And as you can imagine, we get a lot of hilarious promo codes in that promo code box. (laughs) (laughs) So when we see one user is just absolutely trying to hammer that promo code box, we know something's going on. And that's a behavioral trigger to know that this is probably not someone that we want on our website. We made a conscious effort with Hamilton not to have a presale. And so there was no promo codes involved. So when we announced that Hamilton was coming and the on-sale date, you would not believe the amount of promo codes that we got to that box. And we ended up blocking a lot of users over it. That being said, it is really scary to know that those ticket resellers have a secret website that they all have you know, subscriptions to that tell them about pre-sales across the country, that tell them what the individual companies are doing. So knowing that if you block a user blatantly and it's something that they can see that you're doing, they're just going to share that with the other resellers. So you really have to stay one step ahead of them. Interesting. Wow. As a Ruby developer, you've probably used Redis for queuing and caching. But if you're like me, you've never completely understood it. You just followed the tutorial to set it up and then hoped it'd stay up. Now that I'm building my own services for other people, I realize that you and I often don't have the desire or time to run an ops or DevOps team or do it yourself. Plus, since you're not a Redis expert, you're not exactly sure how to know what it's doing. That's why I love Redis Green. No setup. It runs on any AWS region I want, so I can run it near me. And the tooling is amazing. I have to tell you about this feature, actually. It actually maps the memory you're using and tells you where all the memory is allocated. So this makes it really easy to see what's going on in your Redis setup. It also runs on AWS, so it scales easily and can alert you when it hits certain thresholds in performance or capacity. Sorry for going all fanboy on you, but I love this tool. Here's the thing. If you don't want to do ops or are already on Heroku or something, then use Redis Green for the rest. It's simple yet powerful. Check them out at redisgreen.net. I didn't know that Broadway was such a cutthroat business. It absolutely is, especially since you know, you're dealing with a family experience. You're dealing with FOMO. The thing about Hamilton, and I've met many people about that who have said this, is that they don't really want to see Hamilton, but everyone they know loved it. And so now they have to see it. And it's just a very, it's a very different thing. Everyone's just so afraid of missing out and everybody wants to be part of the experience. A huge thing of my generation is that we don't buy things, we buy experiences. And I've seen that change in the last four years that I've been at the Cultural Just, just seeing what, what kind of premium people have for these different kinds of things. Now, a pre-sale that we just had that was very, very, very popular was Blippi. Are you guys familiar with who Blippi is? No. I was going to say, yeah, now, now I'm the old codger who has no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> so I didn't know who Blippi was. I do not have children. And apparently, if I had had children, I would know all about this. So Blippi is a cameraman who was out of work. 
and he decided to create free children's programming on YouTube. And he is incredibly popular. He has millions and millions of subscribers. Parents trust him. And so people will sit their kids in front of YouTube to watch Blippi and not be concerned that Blippi is going to say anything inappropriate, that the kids are getting educational content. So Blippi mm-hmm. has declared that he is going on a tour. Amusingly enough, it's not Blippi himself. He hired an actor. And so we've seen some backlash <laughs> over that. Wow. This guy's a genius. He, he's very smart. Wow. But there are VIP experiences where kids can meet, quote unquote, Blippi at the show. And those, those experiences sold out before the tickets sold out. And it's because, you know, these kids are putting pressure on their parents to be able to see Blippi live. So it's stuff like that that really drives that immediate need. And I'm sure ticket resellers were chomping at the bit to get these Blippi tickets. Interesting. So honestly, I had to look up. I have three children, six and under. So I'm surprised I haven't found out about Blippi yet. But this guy looks so goofy. He has this like orange and blue beanie on with the orange bow tie and these fake orange glasses. (laughs) I'm sure my kids will love it, but... My boss yeah. has uh, four four kids under 10, and he claims that Blippi, quote unquote, phoned it in on this costume. But hey, I mean, this guy is making at least a million dollars a month on what he does on YouTube. It is absolutely wow. crazy. See, Dave, you and I, we aren't the cool parents. <laughs> <laughs> we really aren't. I just oh, give my man. kids Legos and I make them wood blocks and stuff. That's all I think I that's do. good. Wood I blocks. Think... That's so 1982 or something. No, I, I hear you. It's it's just, it's funny to me that this is a thing, but yeah. So one thing that I would also suggest to you, Chuck, is I have a feature on the website that allows me to morph into different users. And I mm-hmm. find that really helpful. So I have a profile of a ticket reseller that I regularly morph into just to see what their experience is like. And if, you know, the, the degradation is obvious and as I'm building new features, so we're working on digital tickets, which is a big feature that will be coming out in Q1 of next year. So the ability to save tickets into Google Pay and Apple Wallet, which has mm-hmm. been a real bear to code because as you can believe, those two features are not related whatsoever. Google Pay is totally different than Apple Wallet. And so that is, of course, another thing that we don't want those ticket resellers to have because it's just going to make it easier for them to transfer tickets to other people. Right. And so as I'm building this feature, I will check in as a ticket reseller just to see what it looks like to them. So about the cookie thing, Mm -hmm. let's say if you have a very crafty ticket reseller that has a bunch of computers and they are behind like a Tor proxy, so they can easily change their IP address on demand, and they use something like Mechanize to basically create a new clean browser session with a faux user agent. How are you going to protect against something like that? And kind of the idea here is when I run Drift and Ruby screencasts, I have over 200 episodes now, I can pretty much detect when someone is pulling down a bunch of videos or they're acting inappropriately. So they've basically written a script to download every video on my website because I can see that they are hitting 10 different pages per second and downloading the content. So I'm able to take countermeasures there. But for ticket resales, I could imagine that being a bit more difficult, especially if they are creating new user accounts ahead of time and stuff. Yeah, so that's that's the thing about this kind of business, Dave, and that's such a great question. 
if they're doing that amount of work in order to get around us, in order to buy tickets, they can have them. That's fine. Like if they're going to do that much work and they're going to buy two tickets to Blippi and resell the VIP experience, that's fine. We'll just deal with it. It's bound they're to happen. We can't <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, yeah, exactly. They're spending their money. Now, if they buy uh, 10 tickets, they're going to show up on a report for us. And that might be an instance where we have someone from the box office give them a call. Another big flag for someone who does something like that is they will use prepaid Visa cards. So that way they can mail the prepaid uh, Visa card to the users. So that way, when they go to the box office to pick up their tickets, their ID matches their credit card. Again, if they're going to do that much work, that's fine. But when they start buying large, large sets of tickets, then that's where we're going to have human intervention to stop that. Yeah. Interesting. I'm wondering too, Dave, I know that you started up Pingverse. Is that right? Yeah. So does any of this apply to that? Not really, because I think Pingverse is a uptime monitoring. So it's basically going to ping or do some health checks on a website. And I really can't see where someone would abuse it as a normal user. Right. I'm also wondering about CodeFund too, but yeah. But I think in some cases, you might have certain people from IP addresses who are generating a lot of traffic on your site. And I think it might be possible in your case, Chuck, if you have something like this, to use Rack Attack. Mm -hmm. So you can see if people are hammering many pages at a certain amount in a interval. And if they are, instead of cutting off their access, especially if you don't have an API, if this is just through the web or through a script, then you might be able to degrade their experience for a cool-off period. Once they have stopped hammering your site, then some of the functionalities automatically come back. Yeah, we use Rack Attack at CodeFund. And Dave, all I have to say is it's a good thing we're not using Pingverse on our staging because... I would have been DDoSing you all morning. (laughs) (laughs) And no, I don't want to talk about it. (laughs) (laughs) I I definitely see that with, you know, where there's money involved with the ads and things like that, that Code code Fund would definitely have people that they don't necessarily want on the platform trying to get on the platform. So one thing that is interesting and something that you need to have an internal discussion about, first of all, if you're going to enable some sort of system like this where you are automating, uh, marking those quote-unquote bad users on your website, make sure that everybody in the organization understands how it works. For us, we have the ability to buy tickets through the website, but we also have a box office and a call center. So you want to make sure that that's clear and that the record shows why you mark them. Not that you just mark them, but there's a reason behind it. Second, what do you do when you have a good user get marked as a bad user? We had an instance where we have a local bank that we have a partnership with. And so we provided that bank with a promo code to one of our Broadway shows. Well, this was a very popular Broadway show. and They sent an email campaign out to the bank. And so everybody at the bank started buying tickets. All of a sudden, we had a large amount of tickets with a promo code from one IP address buying tickets. And we had a user get blocked. And so what that user did is they ended up calling our box office and asking what was going on. And we whitelisted that person so they were able to get through. So just being able to have a system to be able to whitelist someone back through or be able to take their ticket order in a different way is just something that you need to make sure that you're prepared for because you certainly do not want to punish those good users for having suspicious bad behavior. Yeah, that makes sense. So at what point, I guess, is the other question, at least in my mind, at what point do you decide you need something like this? Because it sounds like a lot of work. 
And, you know, when you're small, it may not be something that you're going to prioritize. Yeah, that's not something I even touched upon. So we have two developers of the Cultural Trust and we it's a multi-tenant website. And so it is a different branded experience for every single organization that you go to, but it is one central Ruby on Rails application. So I am the back-end developer, my partner is the front-end developer, and then my boss serves as the director of e-commerce. So he does all the QA and the product management. When we knew that we were going to have Hamilton come, we knew that we were going to have to spend a significant amount of time doing things around this. We're lucky in the fact that our on-sale was a success. There was an organization in Florida where their website went down within five minutes during their Hamilton on-sale oh, due to man. nefarious activity, which is awful. And you know they hit the news and that was just a really big fear of ours. But luckily, it didn't come to pass because we did so much time prepping for it. We got lucky in the fact that Hamilton... Well, not lucky, but... Luckily, Hamilton passed and we still have those features to be able to benefit from. But we decided as an organization that for us to be taken advantage of, that it was worth putting in this sort of tech debt in order to be prepared on the site. We have other tools that we use in AWS, like Guard Duty and a web application firewall in order to pre- prevent other hacker security type issues. But We decided as a team that we would have essentially the Black Friday code freeze where we only worked on features around this thing. I'm lucky in the fact that our main inventory at the Trust is tickets. So I'm very much used to, and I'm guessing you guys all are as well, of working on a SaaS app where the SaaS app is the actual product and that you need to be shipping new features continuously. With this application, our main job is to sell tickets. Those tickets don't change much, but we can create new features in order to make that ticket buying process even easier for the users. So we were lucky that we were able to put the time in in order to make this happen. So I think another important aspect around all of this is awareness to know what your normal range of users are going to do. So your normal range of users are going to buy one ticket every few weeks or something like that. Mm -hmm. And to have viewable metrics to be able to see, here are the people who are outside of our median user group that are basically potential bad actors. What kind of reporting, third-party or in-house, can someone use or leverage to be able to see the trends of their good users and then to be able to start identifying the bad ones? That's a really good question. I think it all depends on the application that you're working with, as most things. In our case, because we have that CRM, we're able to do customized reporting, but we also cross-check that against Google Analytics. Another thing is the the human aspect of it. So as I mentioned, we have that box office. We have people who are in charge literally of group sales. They get a commission whenever we register a group sales order. So when they're getting a large amount of group sales from one user, then we know that something's going on. And when we get a large amount of group sales from, say, like a local elementary school, we know that's a good user that we want to cherish. It really depends on the application that you're using and the expected behavior. So as you said, a one ticket every couple weeks that might even be a little too generous for the, the patrons that we typically deal with. Usually they every couple months, they'll buy two tickets or they'll buy four tickets. But it's when you see that user coming in and buying a large amount of tickets to many shows and they're registered to an address that's out in Washington, then we know that something's going on. So it's, it's finding those patterns and then being able to identify them. And of course, you know we're very lucky in the fact that the trust, we have a, a marketing digital team. And so these are the people who are on social media too. 
and they're finding nefarious activity. So when we knew we had Hamilton coming, we of course made the official event on Facebook that people could RSVP to. You would not believe how many ticket resellers then created their own quote unquote official Hamilton events and then linked to their ticket reseller sites. So finding those kinds of people and being able to identify them has also been really helpful. I wish I could say that the entire process is super automated, but we still have a lot of human interaction in the process. Yeah, one thing that comes to mind for me too is, you know, let's say that I know I'm going to be traveling out to Pittsburgh when Hamilton's in town. It's suspicious coming from Utah because, right, I don't live out there. But the flip side is, is that I'm legitimately going to be out there and, you know, may want to buy myself or my wife and I a ticket. So am am I just going to get caught up as collateral damage on this? Well, it it entirely depends on how you do it. So if you are going to buy two tickets and you are comfortable with having those held at the box office, no, there's no problem because we assume that you will travel into Pittsburgh You will bring your credit card and your ID, come to the box office and say, here I am with my wife. I love Pittsburgh. This is the greatest city ever. I'm never leaving. And I'm here to see Hamilton. We'll, of course, give you your tickets. But if you buy two tickets and then you call our box office and you scream at them and say, I want to be able to print at home. And they're like, oh, don't worry. We'll hold those tickets for you. They'll be ready for you when you come in. And you're like, no, I must have those tickets in my possession right now. You're definitely going to set off some alarms. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. I love it here and I'm never leaving is a big ask though. I like where I'm at. <laughs> That's good. Have you ever been to Pittsburgh? Nope. Put it on the bucket list. It's actually extremely beautiful, but I've also never been to Utah. So I'll put that on my bucket list. Yeah. I've been to Philadelphia, but not Pittsburgh. Oh, it's, it is polar opposite. Do not judge us based <laughs> on Philadelphia. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. You can skip Atlanta. We're not too exciting here. Oh, I like Atlanta. Yeah. I lived in Atlanta for three years that I don't remember. Then we moved back to Utah. I think the last thing that I want to say about all this is that there is no way that you can guess what your nefarious users are going to do on your site. And just like anything like marketing, sales, customer service, you have to iterate. So you can't put in a system like this and then just assume that's going to work. I put in that cookie system maybe a year ago, and I still go back and see whether or not it's effective. One thing that I did is that every time we decide to mark a ticket reseller using that cookie system, I have a Slack hook that will then... There's a separate channel called Ticket Reseller and it will um, post into Slack letting me know that we have ensnared a new ticket reseller from a new account that's been created or they've uh, signed into an old account and marked that up for us. There is nothing more rewarding of having an account that's existed for five years kind of dormant And that ticket reseller signs into it and gets marked. It feels amazing. (laughs) But for the most part, the use case is that new new accounts being created by that ticket reseller are getting marked. But that being said, at some point, you know, this whole system might get exposed and then I'm going to have to iterate again. So you just want to stay tuned in to everyone who has um, any sort of touch with that user and make sure that you're staying ahead of them because trust me, they are iterating just as fast as you are. Makes sense. Have you run into any gotchas with this as you've iterated over it? I would say the the biggest gotcha is just making sure that you're not ensnaring those good users and that you are that you have a clear communication plan for when those bad users do call or email in to ask why they've been ensnared. And so handling that gently because the whole point is to degrade their experience, not take away their experience. You certainly do not want to feel their wrath. 
So just making sure that you have communication ready for anybody in the organization to be able to say that. So we've gotten tweets before, we've gotten direct messages on Facebook, we've gotten emails, calls into the box office, and just making it very clear that our priority is to get tickets into the people that we want to. And that, you know, should they have some sort of weird behavior to either fix that? So maybe they were doing something nefarious and they didn't realize it, or just kind of accept the fact that they, they can't be a customer of ours and being okay with that. Not everyone can be a customer. I like it. Anything else that we should be talking about here? No, I think that's everything for me. I, I couldn't do this uh, without Ruby and Ruby on Rails. So I'm very grateful to have those tooling uh, available to me. It's made a lot of this really simple with background processing, the modeling, being able to uh, reach into those cookies, identify signed in versus anonymous users. All of it's just been really great. Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood, and I just launched my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. It's up on Amazon. We self-published it. I would love your support. If you want to go check it out, you can find it there. The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Have a good one. Max out. All right. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks. Andrew, do you want to start us off with picks? Sure. Since Nate's not here, I know he would be picking this, so I'm going to go ahead and do it for him. It's Nate basically culminated a group of examples for using stimulus reflex, and it's online at expo.stimulusreflex.com. And it's pretty cool. There's a chat example. There's a snake game, geo selector, and you can search for books and stuff. So I would highly suggest taking a peek at that. It's pretty cool. And if you want to contribute anything, we are down to accept it. Nice. Yeah, we need to do an episode on stimulus reflux. Dave, do you have some picks for us? Yeah. So the first pick kind of goes along with this talk, and it is the CyberGhost VPN Chrome extension. So it is a free VPN service that you're able to use for greater anonymity online. And it's one that I found I like. It works. And they also do have some paid versions if you need some more features. And the other one is the gem Coverband. So Coverband is a great gem to be able to flesh out the unused parts of your application. So it's actually something that you run in production, you get reports on, and you'll be able to see what areas of your application just are not getting touched or getting touched the least. And then you see which ones are getting hit the most. So you can basically find what are the real stakeholder functions within your application and which ones can you almost chalk up to be in technical debt because it's code that you're having to maintain that's not getting used at all. So you can then deprecate it out. Hmm. Cool. I like it. I've got a couple of picks. I'm just going to throw these out there. These are conferences that I'm going to be attending in the near future. I'm going to be at Microsoft Ignite in Orlando. This is the first week in November. So this may come out while I'm there. I'm not sure if it's going to come out the week before or the week that I'm there. Anyway, so if you're getting this first week in November, I'm in Orlando. I'm probably going to pull together a meetup like Thursday night. So uh, yeah, keep an eye out for that. And then I just got invited to React Day Berlin. And it looks like I'm probably going to make it out there as well. Yeah, if you're in any of those cities, uh, keep an eye out. I do have an events tab on uh, devchat.tv that I'm fleshing out with a lot of the details on this. So if, if you're in any of those cities and you want to get details on how to meet up, yeah, just go there. And if you can't find it, then tweet at me or something so that I can <laughs> make sure that it's uh, available for you. 
Brittany, do you have some picks for us? I do. So I finally uh, bit the bullet and bought my first keyboard, my first mechanical keyboard. I bought it from KBD Fans, and you can build your own mechanical keyboard, which is really awesome. So it was a DIY kit. I love the keyboard. I'm getting used to it, but I really like the ability to add the switches and the keycaps in myself. It feels a lot more personal that way. So I'm liking that so far. I will also be at RubyConf. I am speaking on day two. I'm talking about how to quit your job. So just a really lovely topic. I'm excited to speak about it. I'm participating in the scholar guide program for the first time. So I will have a scholar with me introducing them into the Ruby community. So if you're going to be at RubyConf, please uh, come greet me and Shelby. We would love to meet you. And then the last thing that I want to pick, fitness is very important to me. And currently the CrossFit Games Open is going, going on. The idea behind it is where grassroots meets greatness. So you get to compete with hundreds of thousands of athletes in CrossFit's largest all-inclusive event. For five weeks, they declare a workout on Thursday night, and then you have three days to complete it. Now, while I'm not trying to win anything, it is incredibly cool knowing that there are people from around the world all doing the same workout and sharing in the same suffering and goal completion. So it's awesome. If you want to check it out, uh, we'll, I'm sure, link that up in the show notes. Nice. Yeah, I've been thinking about checking out CrossFit. I have a number of friends that do it. It's awesome. I don't know if that's for me. I've been doing uh, other things, running and things lately, but yeah. Well, uh, a lot of people who do CrossFit don't like to run, so you already have a, an advantage over them. So just keep that in mind, Chuck. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I've been listening to this podcast for years, so it was really great to to chat with you all. Yeah, it was great to have you on. Do you want to just tell people where they can find you online real quick? Absolutely. So I'm on Twitter at Britt J. Martin, B-R-I-T-T-J-M-A-R-T-I-N. I'm also on the 5x5 network. So it's going to be 5x5.tv slash Ruby on Rails. And then of course, I will be at RubyConf. So please uh, come say hi. Yep. And uh, definitely go check out the Ruby on Rails podcast. It's funny because you're talking about, yeah, I've listened to Ruby Rogues for a long time. And I remember getting started with Ruby on Rails and listening to Jeffrey Grossenbach on the Ruby on Rails podcast. So Very cool. Yep. All right. Well, thanks again uh, for coming, Brittany. And uh, yeah, hopefully people will go check out what you're doing here and go check out your talk as well. Absolutely. Keep those bad users off that site. Heck yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, let's go ahead and wrap this up, everybody. And uh, Max out. All right. Talk to you later. Bye, everyone. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.